Once a champion of school reform, Diane Ravitch became disillusioned with testing and privatization, which put her on a personal and intellectual odyssey, forcing America to confront the unintended consequences of what she calls its education obsession. Diane Ravitch is founding president of the Network for Public Education, and I am pleased to have her on this program right now. Diane, it's been too long. How are you today? Oh, I'm just fine, Tavis, and I remember with great fondness... uh, (laughs) The interview with you in what I think was the most beautiful studio in all of Hollywood. And, uh, you know, I had a great time, so it's nice to talk to you again. You are too kind. I had a great time as well, and I'm delighted to have you on this uh, this version of, uh, of Tavis Smiley. So thank you for the hour. There is a lot to unpack here. I, I want to ask two questions, I think, at the very outset, just to, just to, to set the frame here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump from there. Um, the, the first is, when you say that we have an education obsession in this country, what do you mean by that? Because there are a number of ways to read that. On the one hand, being obsessed with education could be a good thing. I don't think you mean it that way. So what do you mean when you say that we have an education obsession in America? Well, I, I, I'm trying to remember when I said or wrote that, but I think what's going on right now is we have a lot of incredibly wealthy people who are spending vast amounts of money to uh, privatize public education. Mm. And there are people who are mainly on the right wing of the specter, spectrum, and uh, they're pushing vouchers and privatization and charters. And, you know, every time there's a school board election in Los Angeles, millions of dollars come in from out-of-state billionaires, and you have to wonder why. Why do people in New York City and people in and, uh, Maryland and people in other parts of the country, Arkansas, why do, are they concerned about who's serving on the local school board? Uh, but that's happening all over the country, and it has been for the last 10 years. And right now the push is coming from people associated with a group called Moms for Liberty. Mm-hmm. And really it's a, a, a you know a white evangelical group that wants to censor books and censor black history. Uh, so that obsession is not by parents. I mean, parents are obsessed with their kids getting ahead, which is appropriate. Uh, but the obsession comes from people who have really no interest in educating kids, but a lot of interest in taking control of what they learn. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Moms for Liberty as we move through this hour. Let me just, let me. I'm going to follow you as I will for the entire hour, as I always do, because you set me up so nicely. It's easy to follow you. Um, let me, let me, let me probe this first. Um, and I'm not naive in asking this, but why? And there, are, we, we could name them from Bill Gates on down. Uh, but why are these wealthy white men so obsessed themselves? with American education. What's that about? I mean, they're, they, they've gone through the system. Their kids and grandkids have gone through the system. And for whatever reason, they keep pouring millions and billions of their dollars into this system. Why are they, these rich white males, so obsessed with the way we do education? Well, I, I think that there has always been a, a group in the population that thought that if they could control education, they could control the future. Mm. And that's not far off, you know, because if you determine what children are learning, you're going to have a big impact on the future. Uh, If you start turning schools into job training facilities rather than liberal arts, you know, liberal arts are about freedom. Uh, And if you just have a narrow job perspective, then you may be training people to get a job right after school or to leave school and uh, join the workforce because we now have about a half a dozen states that have eliminated their child labor laws or made them so lenient that children are working, leaving school to work in dangerous jobs, which, you know, it's like rolling the clock back 100 years. Um, But why are they so obsessed? It's all about control and power. 
And, you know, some of these billionaires, like Bill Gates, since you mentioned him, he went to private school, Mm -hmm. but he does have this belief that because he's so rich, he knows everything, and uh, the media follows his every move, thinking he's so rich, he must know everything. Mm. Uh, But then there's a guy, the richest man in Pennsylvania, is a guy named Jeffrey Yes, Y-A-S-S. And Jeffrey Yes uh, just gave, in December, he gave the governor of Texas $6 million to push vouchers. Now, he also, he's opposed to abortion, and he funds people who, he's opposed to critical race theory, and he's a graduate of the New York City Public Schools, but he's spending money as if he's worth $32 billion. So, you know, $6 million to mm-hmm. the governor of Texas is nothing to him, but he wants vouchers. Now, here's a guy who's a graduate of public school and who, who made, you would have to say he made good. He's a multi-billionaire. But he's using the money that power uh, mm. and uh, to buy power and to overrule the the people who are uh, let's say parents and and yeah. local people who don't want vouchers. They want their community public schools. Let me, let me ask. And they po- want them better. Yeah. Let me ask point blank: whether or not all of this money, all these millions, are having any meaningful impact. Well, unfortunately, they are because just this year, this this past year, twenty twenty three was the big year of privatization. And uh, states like Tennessee, Arkansas, uh, states in the Midwest, uh, and states in the South, I think there were 14 of them that adopted vouchers. And then a state like Florida uh, went from having vouchers that were targeted towards low-income kids and vouchers for kids with special needs. And they said, well, why not have a universal voucher? So the universal voucher goes to everybody, whether you're rich or poor. And... uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. If somebody's worth a billion dollars, why should they get $8,000 to send their kid to an elite private school? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's been estimated that that vouchers in Florida are mainly going to go to people who are already attending private schools. Uh, it's going to school, religious schools where the teachers are not certified. Uh, it's it's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's I, I just kind of, I'm starting to feel the, the rage rise in me as I see what's happening, which is in state after state, we now know two things about vouchers. One is kids are sent to inferior schools. In most cases, they're not going to elite private schools. They're not being sent to the best schools right. because the best schools are taking paying customers at twenty-five or thirty or $40,000 a year, and that $8,000 voucher doesn't do anything. Where they are going, for the most part, in states like Florida, uh, and Arkansas is to uh, backwoods evangelical schools mm. where they're learning that the Bible is their textbook. Yeah. And if you think the Bible should be a textbook, then you you don't care about <laughs> science or mathematics <laughs> or history. Yeah, let me, let me let me pause right there. Uh, uh, you can see she's uh, she's warming up, as she said. The rage is starting to rise in her again. Um, I, I want to go back uh, when we come forward. I want to go back and ask her uh, what happened in her life. I said earlier she was once a champion of school reform. Then she became disillusioned, and she did a 180. We'll talk about how and why that 180 happened. We're talking to Diane Ravitch right now on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Tavis Smiley and Diane Ravitch right now as we talk about uh, America's obsession with education and what that means, uh, it, uh, it cuts a variety of ways, and we're going to work through that in this hour. So, Diane, let me let me go back um, to some years ago uh, when you were then a champion of school reform. Uh, tell me about that mindset then and what happened. Well, I just finished writing 
my memoirs, and I had to really think hard about what was it that turned me around. And I think, I mean, this may sound crazy, but I think I was brought up in a very middle-class family, and then I married a man who was very wealthy, and I had a lot of privilege, and I started thinking, you know, maybe this is the way the world is supposed to work, that when you have things, you hold on to them, you protect them, and everybody should be judged by test scores and merit, and, and I had high test scores, and people with low test scores shouldn't have the same opportunities that I have. That was very selfish of me. And as I got older, I think I think I got wiser, and I began to say to myself, you know, I was lucky to have high test scores. I know I Somehow it worked out that I was the kind of person who could sit down to a test and, and ace the questions. Mm-hmm. But so what? Where does that get you? I mean, there are a lot of people with high test scores who are, who have no interpersonal skills. You, you know, you see people who are successful in life, like all those people who won the Golden Globes and the Emmys, and, you, and, and I can't help but thinking, what was their test score? And <laughs> probably they had low test scores, but the, what they had was an incredible artistic talent. Yeah. And, and we discount the artistic talent and the ability to be empathetic and to relate to other people. And the same thing when I see Simone Biles do uh, whatever she does in the air, and I, I kind of laugh to myself, and I think, I don't care what her test scores were. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I, I guess that after years of being uh, all about competition and merit and test scores, I began thinking, this is nuts. This is really not the way the world should work. Uh, what we need more of in this world is people who care and people who understand that that when others are in, are suffering or in pain, you help them. You don't discard them. And our society is very ruthless right now. And we have been for a long time where, I mean, I mentioned earlier the, the rollback of child labor laws. That makes me crazy, and I don't understand it. And it happened in Arkansas. It's hap- happened in Iowa. And in many states, they simply are ignoring the child labor laws. Uh, and that's the case in Florida. A lot of the bad things that are happening now started a long time ago under this very harsh right-wing view that uh, you're on your own, and mm-hmm. if you can't make it, it's your fault. Mm. What, what's what's behind you? Re, you referenced it a couple of times now. What what is behind, to your mind, this rollback of these childhood uh, these child labor laws? I I think that there's a couple of things. One is you've got the rise of this libertarian view that government shouldn't tell anyone what to do, and if you if the parents say it's okay for their child to drop out of school and go to work at the age of fourteen or fifteen, that's that's their choice. And we've had laws in this country for since the I'd say since probably 1912, to protect children uh, from working in dangerous jobs or from leaving school before they have an education. So what's behind it is, first of all, that kind of libertarianism that says everyone's on their own and I have no responsibility for anybody else. Mm. But also, uh, it's got tied into the immigration issue because there are so many states that have criminalized uh, taking in migrants, although they're coming anyway, mm-hmm. but they can't, they're not allowed to work. And so if they're not allowed to work and you need somebody to put, the, uh, put up roofs, who are you going to hire to do it when you can't hire the, uh, the immigrants? So you, you find 14- and 15-year-old kids. They're very good at roofing, I understand. I've heard from people who've done roofing that, you know, they're very fast, they're very light on their feet. But if they're not wearing a safety harness, they're in a job where they can, they can literally die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. What do you think the unintended consequences are? I'm sure there are, there's more than one or two, but to your mind, what are the unintended consequences of our education obsession? 
I think that it, you you got to think of the obsession in different ways. Like, okay. I, I, there's the healthy obsession where you really care about what happens to your child, and not only care about what happens to your child, but care about what happens to the rising generation. And, you know, I know this country is becoming more and more multicultural, multi-ethnic, and that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So in a state like Texas, for example, I think the, the majority of kids in the public schools there are now uh, African-American and Hispanic. And that's kind of foretells what the future will be. But they have underfunded their schools for the last dozen years, and the state of Texas has like a $30 billion surplus, and they're not giving any raises to teachers or they're not putting any money in the classrooms because they want it for tax cuts. And so when you put money into tax cuts instead of into children, uh, that's very bad for the country. That's very bad for your state. And that's what the red state governors are doing. Mm. Um, speaking of red state governors, tell me more about these Moms for Liberty. Well, Moms for Liberty started in Florida, and there were three very right-wing women uh, who said uh, that they didn't like what was happening in the public schools because they decided that teachers were grooming children to be homosexual and that teachers were grooming and they were they were introducing children to all kinds of sexual content, which they shouldn't be. And the Moms for Liberty really came out hard in Florida and now in many states against both any kind of uh, introduction to sex education. And also, uh, they're very much in favor of of book banning. They've uh, got a long list of books that they say shouldn't be in schools. And some of them are completely innocuous. They're just sex education. But there also have been outspoken against uh, books that deal honestly and accurately with black history. And uh, they started in Florida, and Governor DeSantis, who I think is a dangerous man, uh, he has passed laws uh, which have uh, really curtailed the teaching of black history because teachers aren't sure what they're allowed to teach. <laughs> and so the best thing they can do is to just uh, make homogenize everything and make it like they were oh, they have this thing called divisive concepts and so in the florida law it says that teaching about slavery has to make it sound like there was the good side of slavery mm-hmm. because after all slavery gave people work skills jobs program yeah the jobs yeah. program yeah right yeah. yeah so you know it, it's it's nutty and there's a very distinguished uh black professor, uh, Dr. Marvin Dunn, in uh, in Florida. And Dr. Dunn has written several books about the history of Florida seen from a black perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's got a horrible history of racism, of lynchings, of massacres, etc. And DeSantis wants to bury all that. Mm-hmm. And that's just not right. And, uh, you know, it, it extends to other issues as well. He's particularly, he hates drag queens and thinks that People should be fined and punished if they take their children to drag shows, even though out of one side of his mouth he's talking parental rights, and out of the other he's saying even if your parent takes you, you cannot go to a drag queen story hour at the local public library. And and it's, you know, he's obsessed with these culture war issues. And I think a large part of it is because he's 
and she, uh, wants to ignore the real issues that affect people's lives, like the cost of health insurance and the cost of home insurance, which has mm-hmm. skyrocketed in the state of Florida. Yep. But he'd rather talk about drag queens than talk about the cost of living. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating for me that a group that calls itself Moms for Liberty wants to then ban books. Um, they're for liberty, uh, but uh, but they want to ban books. Uh, they, they don't want you to have the liberty and the freedom to read uh, what you need to read, want to read, or ought to read. I digress on that particular point. Um, t- I'll, I'll That's come been at- a very important point to digress on, though, because if one parent lodges a complaint against a book, then it will be banned statewide until it's been investigated and, mm. and just, just by just, the state. Just one parent? Just one parent. Wow. And, and there, has, there have been some active parents who come up with long lists of books and when they've been asked, they admit that they haven't even read them. Yeah. What, 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 I'm not naive in asking this, but what do you make of, of the fact that we've gotten to a place in this country, uh, in places like Florida, where, to your point, this, this is, speaking of digressing, this is, I'm, I want to pause for a second here, because um, what you just said is, is worth wrestling with. Um, I, I, what do you make of the fact that in a state uh, as important and as big as Florida, that one single solitary parent, can make a complaint about a book, whether they've read it or not, and that book is automatically banned until it has been investigated. Just one person. Uh, it sounds like it sounds like the U.S. Senate, <laughs> where one yes. person can hold everything up. Uh, but I digress once again. Your thoughts, Diane Ravitch? Well, I think that a lot of this comes from DeSantis because DeSantis is what I call a big government conservative. And he he's not really a conservative because there's nothing conservative about having the government censoring books and uh, getting into people's pers- personal lives, like, you know, going into their bedroom and saying mm-hmm. if, if you are married to somebody of the same sex, you're somehow criminal. And uh, DeSantis is pushing a lot of this. And, for example, just last night the state legislature was passing, I think they passed a bill, saying that children under a certain age can't have social media accounts. Well, that's going to be knocked down by the courts. That's mm-hmm. definitely an intrusion on free speech and and freedom of information and and i just think it's nuts but what's behind it is this belief that that if you have enough power you can use it to make people conform to your beliefs i think the same issue is involved for example in the question of abortion and my view is if you don't if you don't believe in abortion you shouldn't have one but if you have no problem with it and you need to have an abortion for personal reasons, it's between you and your doctor. But then they bring the government in to say nobody can have an abortion. And then as you watch this law roll, the laws roll out in state after state, they're making it in some states almost impossible to have an abortion, even when the mother's life is at risk. Hmm. So it's, it's this idea that if you have the power, and they, you know, these conservative states are, or right-wing states, I guess I should call them, have so gerrymandered their districts that mm-hmm. they, they will stay in power uh, almost forever, regardless of what happens to the population. Yeah. Because there are some states like Wisconsin where the state is so gerrymandered that they come up with a overwhelming majority of Republican seats in the legis- state legislature, but the state has elected a Democratic governor. They've uh, Democrats keep winning statewide elections, mm-hmm. but they can't win the legislative elections because the districts are gerrymandered. Nope, I hear your point. But, you know, that's and that's true. Let me let me. Um, you gonna say something else, Diane? We gonna say something else? I was going to say that if if we go back to choice for just a minute, I, sure. school choice, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking now of vouchers and charters. I think it's very important to remind people where the idea came from, and the idea really 
took off after the Brown decision. And the and at that time, the southern states were all passing laws to protect segregation. Mm-hmm. And they did not want to desegregate. They didn't want any of the uh, court orders to affect them. And so many of them created uh, vouchers where kids could go to private schools and the state would pay for it. And at, at that time, the Supreme Court knocked them down. They won't knock them down anymore uh, mm-hmm. because of the change in this country. But for a long time, uh, the uh, what we now call a charter school would have been called uh, a white academy mm-hmm. because it was a way of white flight subsidized by the government. And the government was paying for these white flight schools and also for the vouchers. And uh, the Supreme Court kept knocking them down, and now that era uh, seems to be behind yeah. us, unfortunately. No, that backstory. I'm glad. I'm glad you uh, you, you pressed forward on that uh, because that backstory of how uh, this notion of school choice came to be. Uh, connected to Brown v. Board is important to be reminded of. Um, let me let me ask a couple questions about things you've already said. So let me go back and then we'll come forward. Some other stuff I want to cover. Um, but two things you said I want to pick up on right quick. And I've got about two minutes right now. We'll continue when we come forward. But right quick here in these two minutes, you said that 2023 was the big year of privatization. That's how you put it. What was happening? Uh, why was the ground so fertile uh, for the advancement of privatization in such a significant way last year? Uh, in my view, the ground became fertile, first of all, because there's a lot of money that has been deployed. And they, the people who want vouchers and want to destroy public schools have been playing the long game. Mm-hmm. They've been at this a long time, and they have organizations. Uh, there's one that's a, a legal defense fund for all of these uh, right-wing groups. And interestingly, the general counsel for the legal, their legal defense fund uh, with Mike Johnson, who's now the Speaker of the House mm-hmm. of the U.S. House of Representatives. And so he worked directly for one of these organizations uh, that was funding vouchers and, and uh, laying the groundwork. Then there's Betsy DeVos, who was Trump's Secretary of Education, and she's a billionaire, and she's been spending on vouchers for the last 30 years. This is her major issue. So she was laying the groundwork, and then Trump finally... I mean, in one term, gets three people on the Supreme Court, and we now have a Supreme Court with six people who are on the right and three who will support uh, civil rights and, and civil liberties and things of that matter. And so I think that the, the, the voucher people realize now is the time. The time yeah. is right. And sure enough, the first case that came before the court that involved vouchers had to do with uh, two evangelical schools in Maine, and they said, uh, well, the, the state is giving money for kids to go to private schools if there's no high school in their district. Why can't we get public money? And so the Supreme Court said that even though these two schools were, were highly discriminatory, that they should get public money as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shows you where we're heading well, now. Yeah. Um, speaking of where we're headed now, uh, we're headed um, uh, to this part of the conversation where I want to talk to Diane Ravitch about the culture wars. You mentioned that earlier. I'm curious as to her take about the role that the culture wars are going to play in this election. I think it's pretty clear uh, it's going to be uh, front and center, but I want to get her uh, her her view more expressly on the role that the culture wars are going to play in this presidential election season. I want to talk about the role of competition in education, whether or not that's the right word. Uh, it certainly exists. Many believe that it should exist. But in what frame? What is the role of competition in education? We'll talk about merit or the lack thereof in education. A great deal more to cover when we come forward, I guess. Uh, Diane Ravitch, you're listening to right now, and I'm glad about it, on Tavis Smiley. 
more of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right well, now. Tavis Smiley and Diane Ravitch coming your way right now. Research professor, education historian, founder of a network of public education. Uh, once a champion of school reform, but um, her disillusionment with testing and privatization put her on a personal and intellectual odyssey, forcing America to confront the unintended consequences of its education obsession. Before I uh, move to cover the things I said I wanted to get to right away, Diane, let me ask you on that last uh, comment that I've just made, uh, that you've been about the business of forcing us to confront these unintended consequences of our education obsession. Do you think America sees it yet? No, I don't think so. I think that uh, people continue to believe that kids should be judged by test scores and that teachers should be judged by test scores. And I think that's an unhealthy obsession because, you know, as we discussed before, the test scores really prove who's good at taking tests, but they don't measure a lot of other things that are even more important. I mean, since we just celebrated Dr. King's birthday, uh, he said the most important outcome of education was character Mm -hmm. and the ability to tell the difference between what was true and what was false. Those were things that matter far more than whether you got this many points or that many points at, at questions that were, you know, the, the way the questions are phrased these days is there might be two right answers and or no right answer, and you, you're supposed to choose the right wrong answer. So it's ridiculous. Yeah. We're, we're using the wrong measuring stick. Yeah. Um, speaking of measuring stick, um, talk to me uh, broadly about what you think the role of competition is or should be in education, or does it not belong at all? Well, I think that where competition belongs is in uh, sports, and I think that that's very clear. You know, you're, if you're playing basketball, the team that gets the most points will win. Mm. And if you're creating a basketball team and that's the purpose of the team, you want the people who are the best at, at uh, the way at, they play, on the, whether at, it's defense at winning, or offense. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Same true for every, everything in sports. I think there are other areas where uh you know, if you have a science fair, the best science project is going to win. I think, though, that we we take it too far. And when mm. we start judging children by test scores, we're using the wrong measure, and competition does not belong there. Uh, let us say, for example, that um, a family has a child who who has issues with school. I mean, maybe they 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 have trouble hearing. They need hearing aids. They haven't. They don't see well. They need glasses, and they're not getting the medical care they need. That's far more important than the test scores. And if they do get the medical care they need, and their scores are average, so what? To you, that child is not average. To you, that child is precious. Mm. And I think that teachers have to treat children with the same understanding that each one is a precious child to their family. And to say, oh, you know, he's only in the middle, or he's he or she is at the bottom, that's just wrong. I mean, that creates a stigma. And many kids just give up once they get that stigma attached to them. Mm. Um, I suspect if Bill Gates or others uh, of his ilk were in this conversation, they'd say, Diane Ravitz, that's where you're wrong. If there's no competition uh, and there are no standards, then how do we judge outcomes? Well, I think the first thing we have to judge is uh, whether we're providing the adequate resources for our schools, whether we have high standards for people we bring into the classroom as teachers, uh, whether we ensure that every child has, first of all, teachers who are well-qualified, and secondly, that they have a class size that makes it possible 
for the child to get the attention that he or she needs. And so the first standards we need to put in place are the standards for what we do for the school and what the school provides to the child. And if we're underfunding the schools, if the teacher has 34 kids in a classroom and doesn't have time to uh, help the kids who are falling behind, then we fail. The child hasn't failed. So I think that uh, because Gates has never understood that, everything he's funded in education has actually failed. Mm. Um, we were talking earlier about, uh, you were talking earlier about uh, what a big year it was for privatization last year, 2023. Uh, I want to juxtapose that against teachers' unions. It seems to me that whatever one thinks about teachers' unions, they're always taking it on the chin. Uh, what's your take on teachers' unions in this process, this education process? Well, I believe in unions, and I think that the great uh, disaster and what's really one of the things that's been harmful in, in our economy has been the successful effort on the part of big business to kill off the unions. There is no one who is helped more by unions than people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the unions have, have historically, over the last century and plus, served as an entrance into the middle class and into the working class. And people who are poor, once they get a union job, they are guaranteed health care and a pension and steady work. And that's very, very important. I, one of my heroes, and actually he was a friend, was Bayard Rustin. Oh, yes. And I very well remember a talk that he gave where he said, you can take a guy who you think is shiftless and can't do anything, put a hammer in his hand, give him a good job with a union card, and he'll take care of himself. And I think that's that to me is very impressive. Now, why are the teachers' unions always being uh, always the goat? It's because they're almost the only unions that are left. I mean, they, the uh, anti-union movement has been so successful in killing off private sector unions that the only really truly powerful unions today are government sector unions, and the, of them, uh, the biggest are the teachers' unions. So you have these uh, right wingers who've done such a great job of tearing down our education system and also unfairly tarnishing it. Uh, and now that they want to get rid of the teachers' unions, and they want teachers to say, now you're free to have no union. Isn't that great? You don't have to pay dues. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can be a free rider. You can continue to get all the benefits that the union fought for, uh, but you don't have to pay the dues. Mm-hmm. So this is really, again, it's not about making schools better when they attack the schools. It's about getting rid of the union so that the workers are all on their own and teachers can be more easily fired. Let me let me uh, let me just pause for a second because I, I've 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 known you and talked to you a number of times over the years and I'm always grateful for these dialogues. You always uh, open my eyes uh, in ways that uh, uh, that I see things I necessarily hadn't seen before, and I learn things from you all the time. But as many times as I've talked to you, Diane Ravage, I have never known until now that you were a personal friend of Bayard Rustin, which leads me to ask what you make of the fact that we are in a moment. I just said this a few weeks ago when that when the, when the movie came out about him, that we are in this moment for the last few years where Bayard Rustin is finally getting his props, finally getting his respect. All these books and documentaries and films, people are finally coming to know and wrestle with the legend of Bayard Rustin. But you were a friend of Bayard's? Yes. Um, actually, I met him through my ex-husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, my ex-husband was active. At, he was a businessman, but he was very uh, engaged in, in social and political act- activism. And he became active with the, the Philip Randolph Institute, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that was led by Bayard Rustin. Sure. And 
so he was friendly with Byard, and we got a call one night at about 2 in the morning that Byard had been arrested on 42nd Street because a policeman saw that he had a sword cane. Now, Byard collected all kinds of exotic things from his tra- many travels across the world, and he had a collection of sword canes. Now, I'd never even heard of a sword cane, but it looks like a cane, but you pull out the handle and there's a sword in there. Why he picked that, I don't know. But uh, my ex-husband went down to the police station and got him bailed out. And uh, subsequently, uh, Bayard said, you know, I need a place to give a concert to the Young People's Socialist League, and it's going to be a cappella. And then he told us that he used to sing with Josh White, which I had never known. So we had to clear our apartment of furniture, and in came about, I don't know, 60 or 70 young people from the Young People's Socialist League. And I have to tell you, Tavis, we were living in an apartment building on Park Avenue in, in Manhattan, and I'm sure that they never had as, as many socialists and black people in their building as, in their entire history as they had on that one night. So Bayard made a, a tape that evening, and um, his uh, his adopted son, who was his partner, sure. uh, has made copies of it, and he sang all the great kinds of uh, folk songs a cappella. He was quite a man. I had uh, immense admiration for him. I, 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 I'm, I'm stunned. Uh, again, I've, I've talked to Diane Rabbit so many times over the years about education and other issues. Had no idea that that story was, was hiding uh, right there. Uh, and so when she mentioned Byron Rustin uh, and her friendship, I had to probe that. And I'm glad I did. That's an amazing story. Byron, as I said, is finally getting his respect. And I'm glad about it. And I'm really glad about the fact that Diane Rabbit mentioned his name and gave us a chance to hear that story about Byron Rustin and all those kids, those black young socialists singing in her living room. More with Diane Rabbit when we come forward on Tavis Smile. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Don Rabbits, tell me when, where, how, if ever, we get to the real conversation in education about equity. Well, we had that conversation years ago, and that conversation now is under attack. Uh, there's a lot of money going into eliminating what's called uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, for a long time, colleges said this is part of our mission, and, and they have programs and, and people who work in those programs and a, a, DE, a diversity officer, a DEI officer. There are states now that are, that are eliminating the entire program and, and uh, they just passed a, a law in, in Florida saying that no public money can go to any college, any public college that has a diversity or equity program. So it is like critical race theory mm-hmm. under attack and it's uh, it really... At bottom, it's about, uh, you know, like rolling back affirmative action. It's an effort to restore, uh, let's say, a colorblind approach that is inequitable. Mm -hmm. Nicely put. Very nicely put. Um, Let me pivot right quick, um, watching my time here. Um, What role do you think these so-called cultural wars are going to play, particularly in this presidential election cycle? I think they, they will be large for this reason. The Republican Party will make cultural war issues big because they don't have any other program. So they can't tell you actually what they want to do about immigration at the border other than to build a wall and stop it. Uh, but they won't sit down and make a deal with the Biden administration about how to make this deal. They just they want to keep the issue. Mm-hmm. So they'll keep saying that the immigrants are destroying the country and poisoning the blood of our country, even though it sounds like Hitler. Uh, and they'll also keep up the attacks on uh, sexualizing the children and 
pedophiles in schools. I mean, I hear this stuff all the time because people write to my blog and say, how can you defend public schools when there's so many teachers who are pedophiles? And mm. I say, where do you get your information from? <laughs> you know, it's like some far-right crazy person site. Um, but they prefer to talk about those issues because they're not, they have nothing to offer on health care mm. or education are you know are, are people's uh, are, are creating jobs that people can actually work in without going through elaborate hoops in it mm. to get into them so if you don't have a program that addresses people's wants and needs uh, it's you're better off uh, selling an attack on equity and an attack on diversity uh, uh, and all the culture war issues that get their base all steamed yeah. up. I think because people, a lot of people, like in Iowa, they think something's being taken away from them mm-hmm. if you give somebody in, in uh, New York or Pennsylvania or Florida a break. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think these uh, culture wars are going to loom large uh, this election uh, cycle and season, and uh, that's not a good thing. I digress. Our remaining moments with Diane Rabbit. She mentioned her memoir that she's working on. I want to probe a little bit of that uh, when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. <laughs> Seeking the truth, speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. The Ad Council. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. Diane Rabbit, you mentioned earlier, uh, just uh, in passing, uh, that you've been working on your memoirs, which I cannot wait to read. How 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 is that process coming along? And if you got if you got more great Byron Rustin stories or stories like that, this is going to be a great book. Oh well, uh, I've finished them. I've sent them. I've, I found the new agent because I, my old agent was a trumper, and I couldn't deal with that. <laughs> um, and uh, I have uh, the book is now out of the publisher, so I'm hopeful it will be out in print in the next year or so. Oh. Uh, but I do have to tell you one Bayard Rustin story, sure. it's one that I treasure about him. Uh, he was very active on behalf of trying to merge the aspirations of the civil rights movement with the union movement, and he mm-hmm. was very involved with the AFL-CIO because he thought that the power that the union movement wielded uh, would multiply the effects of the civil rights movement. And I think he was right. He was a great believer in coalitions. Uh, and he came back from a meeting of the AFL-CIO Executive Committee, which was in Miami that particular year, and he said, I had the most exciting experience. And I, I can't imitate his accent. He had a clipped British accent as though he had been born in Britain, although he came from Chester, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said, I saw... Marlena Dietrich, and I adore that woman, and I made sure to have a table at the very front, and he described the dress she was wearing. It was all shimmering gold, and, and she was so beautiful, and she was wonderful, and he said, I love that woman. I threw flowers at her feet, and I said, well, what is it about her? I know she's a wonderful singer, and she's very beautiful, but what is it? He said, that woman told Hitler to go F himself. <laughs> <laughs> And if you can imagine it in this clipped British accent, yeah. it was just priceless. That that sound that sounds like the Bob Rustin that we are all getting to know more of. Um, it is amazing yeah. the role that he played uh, in, of course, making that March on Washington in 1963 actually happen. Working alongside A. Philip Randolph and Dr. King and all the other big six, uh, but his, his story uh, of uh, his brilliant organizing, his brilliant mind. Uh, and, and he was a great writer. And a great writer, indeed, indeed. Uh, that story is finally starting to be told. And it's just amazing to me. It just reminds me that, uh, that, uh, that in real time, oftentimes, we don't appreciate people for who they are. 
and for their, for their contributions. I mean, yeah. I, I just, I thought of him recently and I thought, oh, how I wish he were here to see the yeah. recognition that he's yeah. getting because yeah. he was frequently felt he had to stay in the shadows sure. because he had been so vilified for sure. being gay. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's why. And that's, he was also called a communist, which was quite the joke because he was also criticized by others for being anti-communist. Anti-communist, yeah. And he was not a communist. He was, he was a pacifist. And he said the greatest regret of his life was that he went to jail during World War II uh, because he was a pacifist, and he yeah. said, "If I had known what Hitler was doing, I would not have been a pacifist." No, it's a powerful, powerful statement. I, I, yeah, it, it just reminds me uh, that we can't do the work that we do. We can't love and serve people uh, for the for the for the adoration, for the adulation, or for the accolades. That's not why we do what we do. And Diane Ravitch does it better than anybody when it comes to the issue of education and uh, educating our babies. Diane, good to have you back on this program. Great to hear your voice. I look forward to the memoir coming out, and you must return for an our conversation when that book drops. Well, thank you so much, Tavis, and as always, it's wonderful to talk with you. Good to hear your uh, voice. Stay healthy, stay well, and keep fighting. Same thing to you. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.